Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. I'm the youth and young people's worker here at Crescent Church in Belfast, and sitting alongside me to help guide us through these big topics is Jim Crooks. Jim is chairman of Christian Unions Ireland and an elder and Bible teacher here at Crescent Church. Jim, it's great to have you with us. I was wondering, just as we start out, if you could give us a little sense of your background and how you've ended up on a podcast like this. Hello, Ollie. Uh, The short answer is that you invited me to sit at this table surrounded by (laughs) cables and machines. I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest, about how this is is going to work out. I, I don't know how to position it yet in my head. I'm not doing what I usually do, which is stand in a pulpit, deliver a sermon, and we're not having a private chat. Podcasting seems to me to be something in the middle, and I haven't quite yet worked it out. (laughs) No, I'm totally with you on that. It does take a little while to get used to. But next week, um, I'm going to bring some cake, and hopefully that'll help us relax and and get used to it. (laughs) Now, a more sensible answer to your question about how we got here probably begins with my involvement in student ministry. About a decade ago, it became obvious to me that young Christians hadn't been equipped to live or to witness uh, in a post-Christian culture. Lots of reasons for that, of course. The pace of change in society, the mistake we made to insulate teenagers from anti-Christian teaching rather than inoculate them against it. Far too much Bible teaching that failed to engage with other worldviews. So I ended up doing quite a number of evangelistic events on campuses throughout Ireland. And I also started an apologetics class that tackled the big culture war issues head on. Then about three weeks ago, uh, I was invited to uh, an event hosted by Premier Christian Radio. Uh, There was a free lunch, uh, but the people who spoke made a really compelling case for churches to engage in the digital lives that people are now immersed in. Uh, So here I now sit. Brilliant, Jim. Thanks for for that introduction. Over the next three episodes, we're going to be addressing the question, is the Bible just a flawed human document? In episode one, we will address the question of inspiration. And that's the claim that Christians make, that the Bible is the inspired word of God, a massive claim. In episode two, we will ask how the Bible came together as one book and who determined its makeup. In other words, how do we end up with the 66 books that we now have in our Bibles? Finally, in our third episode, we're going to look at the question of reliability. And that's the question of how we can be confident that the Bible we have today matches up with those original books. Jim, I think the question regarding the nature of the Bible is of massive importance. Why do you personally think it matters that young people are equipped to think this through? I was raised in a home where I was taught that the Bible is the inspired, completely accurate word of God. But then I got to university and I spent time among friends who just thought it was a collection of old human documents. So I couldn't start a sentence with the phrase, the Bible says, and expect my friends to think it carried any weight. Then when I entered the workplace in England, non-Christian work colleagues were mystified by my view of the Bible. It seemed to them I had just accepted a random book as the source of authority over my life. They thought Christians just accepted that as a brute fact, not as a conclusion of a rational argument. So unless we give confidence to young Christians that there are rational grounds for believing the Bible to be God's word, they will always have this lurking fear at the bottom of their minds that they just accepted a random book as the authority over their lives because mummy and daddy told them Bible stories at bedtime. I think that's really helpful, Jim, and I definitely can relate to that fear that maybe I only believe these things because that's what my parents told me growing up. 
so, so, so let's start by examining the claim that the Bible is the inspired word of God. This claim raises a, a huge number of questions, but to begin with, let's take the Bible sitting right here in front of us, Jim, on this desk, and let's imagine that I open it for the very first time. What should I expect to find within its pages? You should expect to find history, because at one level, the Bible is a history book. On quite a few occasions, I have given a student from China a Bible, and I love to watch their reaction when they open it. I think they usually expect it to be full of wise little proverbs like the writings of Confucius, but they're in for a shock. The Bible isn't just a set of wise sayings or uh, timeless principles. Uh, It's full of narrative, historical narrative. And those stories aren't there to teach us interesting lessons, you know, the way Aesop's fables do. Bible stories aren't just rich mythologies. Christians claim that biblical narratives describe real historical events. Christianity is not a philosophy. It claims to be truth revealed in history. It doesn't operate on the plane of timeless ideas. It records the lives of people in the Near Eastern Bronze Age. It describes the history of a nation and individuals within that nation. Sometimes it consists of big long lists of historical events. The Bible records God's acts in history, like the giving of the Ten Commandments or Jesus coming into the world. And what about the parting of the Red Sea or or turning water into wine? What about the miracles? Because these seem quite audacious claims to make. Are you insisting that they're true as well? Well, look, Christianity is founded on the idea that the supernatural exists. We say that there is more to reality than can be explained by naturalism. So if someone closes off her mind to the possibility of miracles, then they won't get very far in engaging with Christianity. So I always counsel non-Christians simply to reserve judgment when they read miracles in the Bible for the first time. I guess the challenge to that suggestion is why should someone do that? Even if we take your point about being open to the possibility of miracles, why shouldn't we make a judgment about the truthfulness of miracles in the Bible immediately as, as we read of them? The question, can a miracle happen, is not a scientific question. It's a worldview question. It's a theological question. Now, I know that sounds as if I have sidestepped your question, but but I haven't. The best place to begin is to understand what Christians mean by the term miracle. Miracles aren't magic. A miracle is an exceptional event injected by God into nature, but he always does it for a moral purpose. So miracles are like signposts that point to theological truth. Now, if that's what a miracle is, then you can only form a judgment about it once you understand the theological context in which it is claimed that it has occurred. And there's a fair bit of learning before that sort of understanding can be gained. Someone who's just opened the Bible for the first time can't, well, by definition, they can't have grasped the biblical worldview. They haven't yet had the chance to test its coherence or its explanatory power. So until that understanding is in place, just reserve judgment on the truthfulness of the miracle. It's the compelling rationality of the overall Christian worldview which eventually gives the reader reasonable grounds for believing that miracles actually happened. Okay, so let's get back to the main point about the term inspiration. So far you've been arguing that God has acted in history and the Bible is a record of those divine actions. But doesn't that reinforce the view that the Bible itself is just a human document? The events, maybe they do come from God, But the recording of those events, well, that was done by flawed human beings. So the Bible is presented as a human witness to God's dealings with mankind. Is that what the Bible is? The short answer to that question is no, because I haven't let out the full story yet. 
Christians believe in a God who has spoken. He hasn't only acted, he has spoken. He has communicated verbally to us. With divine genius, God the Holy Spirit has crafted the scriptures so that anyone from any culture can come to know God for themselves. So, as Christians, we believe in a personal God who speaks. Now, the obvious question is, how do you go from that idea of a personal speaking God to the words we read in the Bible? Let's slow down for a moment and make this as simple as we possibly can. Let's imagine we're all in a cold dungeon in Rome and we watch as the Apostle Paul constructs his letter to the Philippines. We take this single piece of parchment and we pass it round from hand to hand. Maybe the ink isn't quite dry yet. What do we mean when we say that this letter that Paul has just penned is the inspired word of God? Well, Paul wrote that letter in Greek. Uh, The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek languages. So when Christians say that God speaks, they mean that God has condescended to communicate with us using human languages, like Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, the Christian scriptures are different from the scriptures of Islam on this point. We don't make any special claims about the languages used in the Bible. We cheerfully admit that Hebrew and Greek are just normal human artifacts that evolved over time like all the rest. Some philosophers are horrified at the idea that the eternal God could somehow condescend to express his thoughts using symbols and rules created by humans. But if you're horrified that God would condescend to use a human language, what are you going to make of the central claim of Christianity, the claim that God condescended to become a human being called Jesus Christ? He spoke in particular languages with a regional dialect. There's nothing illogical about the idea that a personal speaking God could condescend to use human languages in order to communicate with creatures made in his own image. Now, there are two key verses in the Bible which describe its self-understanding. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and I'm going to quote it to you now. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The phrase that really jumps out at me there, Jim, is, is that phrase, breathed out by God. What does that mean? It means that the individual words of the Bible are God's words. It's not as if God communicates principles to us using flawed human language. The assertion here is that God's communication is verbal. It operates at the level of actual words and sentences. And the view I'm defending here says that all the words in the Bible are inspired. The idea is not that God's words are like little gold nuggets that can be mined from a whole lot of human words. So we don't say that the Bible contains God's word. We say that the Bible is God's word. Now, you might think that is unlikely. But there's nothing illogical about it. The early Christian fathers all agreed with what is now called the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That's why the doctrine doesn't even appear in the early creeds, because it was so uncontroversial. So if that's how Christians really understand the Bible, it sounds a little bit like you're saying there isn't really anything human about it at all. But if the 66 books that make up the Bible did, in fact, have human authors, the the contents page in the Bible in front of us, Jim, talks about the prophecy of Isaiah or the Gospel of John or Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. These are are human authors. So what role did, did they play in all of this? I said a minute ago that there were two key verses that explain the Bible's self-understanding. Let me now quote you the second verse. Uh, This one is from 2 Peter. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word that is translated as carried along in that verse, it it has the idea of a sailing ship being borne along by the wind to its final destination. So Peter is saying that just as a sailing ship is borne along to its final destination, so the Spirit of God fills the minds and the souls of the biblical authors with divine truth, mingling it with the writer's own style and vocabulary and experience, guiding the author to a perfect result. Now, I know the question you're about to ask me. How do you combine human and divine authorship? People who are familiar with the original language can enjoy the rich varieties of writing styles that we find in the Bible. Some of it is beautiful, skillfully crafted prose. Other bits are just very direct, ordinary day, everyday speech. So they clearly didn't go into some sort of a trance while the quill moved across the papyrus. So I hear you saying it's not simply human and it's not simply dictated by God. So that's a a pretty hard concept to get our heads around. Can you give any other thoughts on how inspiration might actually work in practice? I suppose like all miracles, there's there's an element of mystery here. And I sometimes find it helpful as an analogy to consider the virgin birth of Christ. Mary was a spiritual, godly young woman, but she needed a savior. She tells us that herself. And yet mysteriously, God's Holy Spirit combined natural human processes with divine supernatural processes to create the perfect Christ child in Mary's womb. So let's apply that analogy. The authors of scripture were spiritual, godly people, but they weren't perfect. They were flawed like the rest of us. And yet mysteriously, God's Holy Spirit combined natural human processes like creative writing and memory with divine supernatural processes to create the perfect written word of God. So here you're using the word perfect there. Does that mean the Bible is without even grammatical errors? It, it does contain some grammatical errors. But listen, I, I've already argued that God accommodated himself to speak in human languages like Hebrew and Greek. And the grammar and vocabulary of those languages obviously shaped how God expressed himself. God stooped low to speak in human languages. So is it incredible that he should also take account of the further limitations and idiosyncrasies of each individual author? Through one he speaks in the language of a shepherd, another in the language of a civil servant, and so on. To achieve truly idiomatic speech, perhaps God even deigns to speak ungrammatically on occasions. I don't see any problem at all with the use of idiomatic speech. In fact, I think it should be expected. I think that's a really interesting take on inspiration. And I feel like we've covered a lot of ground so far in this episode, Jim, but we have a lot further to go on this subject. So if you wouldn't mind, could you sum up where we've got so far? Well, I hope we've done enough to show that the idea of inspiration is logical. Now, that conclusion on its own doesn't prove anything, of course. The idea that someone is a billionaire might be logical, but that doesn't mean that they are, in fact, a billionaire. So as you say, we have still a lot of road to travel. But it is no small thing to say that the idea of an inspired word of God is coherent and logical. We've talked through the idea that the Bible is both human and divine. God, who knows everything, orchestrated the lives, the cultural context, the experience of human authors, so that their natural talents could combine with the divine author who saturated their minds with illumination and as a result the perfect word of god was produced and there's nothing illogical about that and that is a good start thanks jim i've really enjoyed thinking this subject through and i look forward to episode two don't forget i promised you cake for the next episode so i'll bring that along and you can give it a rating out of 10 cake makes everything better (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to episode one of the Equip Project podcast. It's been great to have your company. We hope you can join us again for episode two as we consider the 66 books we have in our Bibles and we ask why these 66 and not others. If you would like to suggest a topic or question we can talk about together, please email the Equip Project at gmail.com.